0: everyone, welcome to Talking Tudors episode 158. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and never miss an episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a wonderful Anne Boleyn gift bundle, which contains the following items. An Anne Boleyn Most Happy Portrait medal plaque created by Lucy Churchill. A copy of The Boleyns of Hever Castle by Dr. Owen Emerson and Claire Ridgway. A copy of Becoming Anne, Connections Culture Court by Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey. The wonderful novel Struck with the Dart of Love by Sandra Vasoli. A copy of In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn by Yours Truly and Sarah Morris. And also copies of Le Tom's Viendra, Volume 1 and 2 by Sarah Morris. There's also an Anne Boleyn ornament by Catherine Holman. A huge thank you to Dr. Orne Emerson, Lucy Churchill, Catherine Holman, Sandra Vasoli, and Sarah Morris for contributing to this amazing prize. While we're on the topic of Anne Boleyn, just a friendly reminder that the early bird offer for 365 days with Anne Boleyn ends on the 1st of June 2022. If you've been thinking about joining me on this year-long, unique learning experience, now's the time. For a full list of what's included and to reserve your place, please visit my website. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tutors Live Talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of June, I'll be chatting to Brooke Little about the musical lives of the Tudor Queen's consort. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone, cases, mugs, notebooks and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag I Love Talking Tutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Tudor London is Dr. Charlotte Berry. Dr. Berry is an independent scholar. Her book, The Margins of Medieval London, was released in February 2022 in the Royal Historical Society's New Historical Perspectives series, published by the University of London Press. She received her bachelor's degree from the University of York and her PhD from the Institute of Historical Research, University of London. She has published articles on the social history of late medieval and early modern London. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Tutors, Charlotte. How are you?
1: Thanks very much. I'm very well this morning. Well, it's my morning, it's yep. your evening, I guess.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, it's all good. So a good place to begin is just you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background.
1: So my name's Charlotte Berry. I'm a historian of the 1400s and 1500s, um, and I particularly specialise in the social history of London. And I've worked on um, marginality and immigration and the ways that people got along together in their neighbourhoods.
0: Yes, it sounds so interesting. And I've just recently received your new book. I've been waiting a little bit. That's one of the things about living on the other side of the planet. Um, So the margins of late medieval London. So can you tell us just a little bit about this book? Maybe what inspired it?
1: So my book is about London and Londoners in the 1400s and early 1500s. And it's especially about people who lived on the edge of the city. So that's the physical edge of the city, but also the social the social fringe. Um, it's about their lives and the way they got along with each other and the way that they interacted with the institutions that governed the city, like the mayor and the guilds. Um, and I got interested in this topic because really most of the historians who've written about London who've focused on the citizens. Um, but the citizens are actually quite a narrow group. It's about 20% of the male population. And I found this out when I was doing my masters, and I got so interested because that just seems like such a small proportion of London's population. And I just wondered well, firstly, that's 20% of the men, so it's actually 10% of all the adults. It ignores the women and I just wondered what the other 90% of people are doing and that was really um where the germ of the book came from
0: fantastic and and so I suppose before we dive into kind of looking at some of those neighborhoods and, and people uh, what was late medieval early Tudor London actually like in terms of you know what it looks like what it smelt like what it sounded like all those all those fun things
1: so London in this period, is a place with. Uh, it's the biggest. It's the biggest city in England at the time. It's the only city in England that is anything comparable to the kind of cities that you get on the continent, which were bigger. But it's much bigger than anywhere else in England. So it's a complete metropolis from the point of view of of English people who come there. Um, In the 1400s, it has a population of about 50,000 people. um, But by 1550, it has about 70,000. So the reign of Henry VIII is really a period where the city is growing in terms of population and physically expanding outwards and its society and its government are dealing with all of the difficulties that come with trying to cope with a city that's expanding maybe by about 40 in the, percent in the course of a few decades. One of the misconceptions people tend to have about medieval cities is that um, because they didn't know about germs carrying disease that there were these incredibly dirty places and no one cared about it. Whereas actually, I suppose you could say they're dirty places, but people do care about (laughs) it. It's just that it's a real problem trying to manage that sort of concentration of population. But they do have systems for trying to clear waste. Every ward of the city, every neighbourhood employs people who are there to clear away the waste and dump it elsewhere but that doesn't mean that the city isn't a smelly place particularly around areas like butcher's markets they get particularly gross you could say because there's lots of offal and blood and things and actually there's some archaeology that's been done of the western ditch of the city which was really close to the west smithfield butcher's market and analysis of the soil there reckoned that it must have been damp for about you know, the majority of the year. So it really only dried out in the in the real height of summer, which means the rest of the time, (laughs) it was a pretty stinky place. So around the market, it would it could be particularly kind of kind of smelly, but it's also a really sort of bustling, lively place. One thing about medieval cities is that they can't naturally replace their own populations because disease means that um, people tend to die a bit younger when they live in cities than they did in the countryside. Um, And that means you need a huge amount of immigration. London's population for the 1400s was pretty stable and then it's growing in the early 1500s, which means that even in the 1400s, you need quite a lot of new people coming in just to maintain a stable population early 1500s reign of henry VIII. you you've got loads of new people coming in from the countryside to find their opportunities in the city which means that most londoners are fairly new even people who end up being fairly successful in the city people who make it to the level of being say a common councilman which means you're involved in the government or even up to right at the top of the government to the alderman most of those people will be first or maybe second generation immigrants to the city so It's a place where lots of people are new and they're trying to find their their place in society and they're trying to figure out how you run a society where where things are face to face because they don't have, you know, media in the same way that we do. But how do you how do you cope with that when there's there's 50,000 people and you can't possibly know everyone like you would in a smaller village? They're constantly grappling with these with these problems.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm so glad that you mentioned about clearing the waste because I think that's one question that people constantly ask and are curious about. You know, we have this image of, and you've probably seen it in the films and things, you know, opening the top window and chucking your bucket of waste out onto the street <laughs> on top of someone's head walking down below. Like, did you find any evidence of that and how? Did people get rid of human waste at this point? Did you come across any evidence for those things?
1: Well, you certainly could open your top window <laughs> and throw a bucket down into the street, but your neighbours would have means to complain about. That right, <laughs> yeah. so. so there are lots of different kind of systems that go on for managing waste. So people do dump waste in the street and the wards employ uh, rakers and scavengers, which are the, yeah, the waste removal people of their time. The rakers are really there to... You know, so rake to, sweep, to rake, yeah. sweep things up, and the scavengers are doing a similar job, but their name suggests they're probably trying to find anything valuable that you can recycle from from that. Um, in terms of human human waste, most houses will have a a cesspit built into their back garden and if you were a poorer person and you live in a little alleyway where there's lots of small little cottages grouped together you might be sharing one communal privy which goes into a cesspit. There are public toilets in London by the way Richard Whittington, Dick Whittington Uh, who was a real mayor of London, but British listeners may know that he's also a pantomime character. (laughs) One of the things that he did in his will was that he paid money um, to found some public toilets in in London, which lasted for several hundred years, obviously being rebuilt in that time. But the cesspits uh, are built in the back of people's yards and you have people who are wonderfully called gong farmers whose job is to go and clean out cesspits. And I found some court records for people who live on the fringes of the city in communities on the edge of the city complaining that there are there are gong farmers who are being paid to clear people's cesspits in the city and then getting just outside the area of the city's jurisdiction and just dumping the waste which must have been very unpleasant for them. But yeah, people are really concerned with with waste collection. That It's not perfect. It's obviously quite a smelly place, particularly the city ditch, but they're trying.
0: (laughs) Yes, I think that's the main thing, because I think there's this idea that people didn't care about personal cleanliness, about, you know, the the cleanliness of their house. and, And I do think that's a bit of a misconception. So that's great. So if I was taking a walk around, you know, early Tudor London, what are some of the places and the features that I might come across?
1: So if we start at the edge of the city, we'll stay. we'll start in the east at Aldgate, which is um, one of the major gates of the city. It's uh, set into the wall of the city. The city has defensive walls in this time, albeit that London doesn't seem that bothered about its defences. It might look, if you're standing outside Aldgate, a little bit shabby, a little bit like it could do with some repairs. And this gate of the city is at the end of the major road that runs from London to Colchester. It's an old Roman road going out into Essex. And it would be an incredibly busy place. There's lots of car traffic coming backwards and forwards. London's really interconnected with the economy of the region in which it sits so london constantly constantly in and out to get goods and people bring their goods into the city to be sold so you're stood looking at this quite impressive gate into the city and you're probably being buffeted around by people and carts wanting to get past and get in as you head into the city one of the things that you would notice is that there are so many parish churches in the city london within its walls is about a mile or so squared, but it has over 100 parish churches. Parishes can be really tiny and outside the walls can actually be really large, but within the walls, yeah, they're really densely packed. People worship in quite small communities and parishes aren't just communities for worshipping they're also social communities and ways that people get on they have government structures that people want to get ahead and be a church warden and it's a way of showing yourself and distinguishing yourself and showing that you're a you're a man who can take on responsibility so but alongside parish churches you would have uh, religious houses that Uh, Actually, if we've just headed in through the wall from Aldgate, one of the first parish churches you come to is called St. Catherine Cree. Um, But this parish church is slap bang next to a priory called Holy Trinity Priory. And it's almost sort of within the grounds of the priory. And this is a real kind of an indication of what the what the relationship between Londoners and religious houses is like religious houses. there's so many religious houses in the city there's friaries as well there's hospitals which are also religious foundations in this time and they have a dual sort of spiritual and medical role and these are pretty impressive impressive buildings all of them are contained by these outer outer precinct walls so within and outside London you'd find um yeah these sort of contain spaces but within them over the course of the 15th century they're also um, making money by building more and more housing for lay people in them so even though these are sort of religious spaces one thing you would notice that's quite strange is there seem to be quite a lot of non-religious people heading in and out um, who just have their homes in there and for some of them they have legal exemptions which means that you can live in there. And practice a trade, but you will be exempt from guild regulation. The guilds won't be able to come and check what you're doing, and those become quite desirable places. And in the later 1400s and early 1500s, lots of Religious houses and hospitals are trying to get more and more legal privileges for themselves because it's a good way of attracting tenants and tenants means rent and you, you make your money, you make your money that way. Another really important thing you would notice as you walk around of the markets and these tend to take still tend to take over whole streets. Some of them, like the Leadenhall market, have a dedicated structure that they happen inside. But they tend to still be street markets in this period. And the markets are allocated by the type of thing that they they sell. So there are two major butcher's markets. Those happen outside the city. They're both called Smithfield, confusingly. There's West Smithfield in the west and East Smithfield in the east. And these are really important places because the city loves to eat eat meat and they're just they're outside the walls partly because you know it's kind of we've already talked about how unpleasant it is to be near a butcher's market but also because these are the ends of the routes of people bringing their cattle and sheep and pigs into the city so you have this all these sort of transport routes of animals coming towards the city for slaughter and butcher's markets are a really important way in which the city feeds itself and yeah, within the city, you'll then have other markets that are allocated for different kinds, of, different kinds of goods at different times of day. But you'll also notice as you walk around that there are mainly women walking door to door who are known as hucksters who are selling things. And they would have got up early in the morning, gone to the market and bought things. And then they'll go door to door and sell that on maybe a, a little a little profit to them the city complains about them constantly but it must have been quite convenient to people if you have markets that happen at very restricted times of the day and sell specific things it's probably quite handy having someone come to your door and say look I've already been so do you want to buy this and you might pay a little bit more but it's the convenience of of getting it the city's sort of really impressive Two buildings as we get into the centre of the city, I suppose, is St. Paul's Cathedral, which is on the same site as the present St. Paul's Cathedral, but is actually larger than than the present St. Paul's Cathedral, with a spire that's much taller than the dome of the Christopher Wren's post-Great Fire Cathedral. So it's a huge, impressive gothic building which would completely dominate not just the city but also you'd be able to see it for miles and miles around there'd be nothing as tall as that and the other major building at the centre of the city is the Guildhall, which is just a few streets away from St Paul's Cathedral and still exists, although it was heavily bombed in the Second World War. But it's the city's centre of of civic power. It's called the Guildhall, but it's um, really the meeting place for the the mayor and the ordermen and all the courts that take place. The sheriffs of London and Middlesex sit there. So it's really the centre of government and the legal system. In, in London. And I should mention, because I've forgotten them, all of the guild halls of the individual guilds as well. There are many, many guilds that regulate trade in London at this time and they all have, by the 1400s, they've all got their own halls where they socialise, where they hold their meetings and their courts for regulating their trade. And those dot all around the city. In this period, people still tend to be Members of the guild for the trade they practiced. That by the later part of the 1500s, that wasn't the case. So you, people would just join a guild because it meant you got citizenship, and it didn't really matter what you're doing. But in this period, people still tend to practice. If you're a fishmonger, you join the fishmongers' guild. They're also changing in this period, so they start calling themselves companies rather than rather than guilds and they become much more hierarchical this is a thing that's happening over the period is that if you're standing outside a, a guild hall in the early 1500s you might see liverymen coming and going and they'll be wearing their special their special dress to go into the to go into the hall but they are distinguishing themselves from the other members of the guild who are just known as freemen and this is something that's happening and probably happening because the population is growing as well. People want to distinguish themselves and say, oh, I'm not just a member of this guild. I'm one of the really responsible members of this guild. So y- you would see these, yeah, you see liverymen around who are wearing um, the special clothing of their company. Every company had a different set of colours and they choose to change their colours every couple of years so people could recognise them and see that. People would have probably been quite good at saying, "Oh, that's a goldsmith. That's a tallow chandler." They would have known the colours, and you would have been able to distinguish that by people's dress if they were live The ordinary freemen, they just they get to practice their crafts, and that's that's it.
0: Well, I'm trying to imagine everything as you're speaking. It sounds like you visited um, medieval and <laughs> Tudor London, Charlotte. That's that's wonderful. So I'm I'm thinking, okay, so you know, about one mile square, there's there's all these different buildings, there's dwellings, there's lots of people, you know, up to 70,000 you mentioned by the middle of the 16th century. So I'm thinking it's quite crowded. Were there many open spaces and gardens where people could kind of get that green space that we love so much today?
1: Yeah, that would have been a major difference, I think, between uh, between the city today and, and uh, a late medieval or an early modern city is that, Green spaces are really important. And this is the simple fact that not only do you need green spaces for recreation, absolutely, but also you need them for very, very practical reasons as well. People need to grow food near to the near to the city. There's lots of market gardening that goes on. And also, as I've mentioned, you have these suburban butcher's markets. Well, you need somewhere to put the animals before they come to the butcher's markets. There's lots of pasture land around. In the kind of the late 1300s in London, if you look at the records for that, particularly if you look at the records where people were having disputes about buildings, you can see they mention gardens a lot, both inside the walls and outside the walls. So in the late 1300s, it seems like there's quite a bit of that green space happening within the walls of the city. But when you look at those same records about 100 years later, around the turn of the 16th century, you really find that that green space within the walls seems to have disappeared and it's gone outside. But that's not to say that People are still within easy walking distance of of green space. The historian John Stowe, who was writing in the the 1590s, he was quite an old man. He'd grown up in London in in the 1530s, and he wrote a history of the city. But a lot of it is just his memories of what it had been like. And he'd grown up during this period of complete physical transformation of London by the 1590s. London's getting on for 100,000 people living in it. And the city's suburban sprawl has become much more intensified. And he writes longingly of, uh, in his childhood, going outside gate to buy milk from the cows that were pasturing there and walking in the fields around there as a, as a way to relax and unwind. But he's writing about this in the 1590s, like this is a bygone era, 60 <laughs> years before... But those those green spaces were really important. One of the things I found when I was doing the research um, that's in the book is that There are a lot of garden plots just outside the city and people pay money, rent garden plots, like you might rent an allotment now. Um, So they've got somewhere to do a little bit of market gardening. And some of those people live within the city and come out and some people live outside the city and have their little garden plot there. Um, And pasture land as well, as I said, is very important. Um, But also there are other economic uses for green space. There's tenter grounds, uh, which is where we get the expression to be on tenterhooks from. Tenterhooks are what you use to stretch out wet cloth in the cloth making process. You stretch it out so that it will dry as the final stage of finishing the cloth. Um, But that takes quite a lot of space so people use the open space around the city to do that. There's a fantastic map called the Agas map of London which depicts it in about the 1550s, 1560s and if you look up in, I think it's in Moorgate which is Quite a sort of a fairly marshy sort of area just to the north of the city walls. You can see cloth stretched out on tent hooks in what are called tent grounds for finishing off cloth. So people like being able to go to the walking and entertainment, but also there are really practical reasons to have green space near the city.
0: Yes, I love that map. I know the, the image you're talking about. It's so good. And I love hearing about the origins of phrases that we say, because so many of them do end up being 15th or 16th century. It's, it's so interesting. So in terms of the neighbourhoods and the neighbourhoods that you researched, so are they neighbourhoods or are they parishes? And, and what places did you focus on and why did you choose those locations?
1: So I focused on neighbourhoods that are just outside the city walls. This is because the city has this area outside its walls which is what's called within the bars of the city there were bars set across the roads a few a couple of hundred meters away from the city walls which mark the end of its of its jurisdiction so the city has these neighborhoods that are not within its defensive walls, but still within its jurisdiction. And these are places that are quite interesting because they're quite different to neighbourhoods within the city. They're not as densely populated in most cases. They include the sorts of green spaces we've been talking about. And also they have this kind of ambiguous relationship with the area around the city. They tend to shade into areas that are outside the city's the city's boundaries. So for instance, one of the neighbourhoods I looked at uh, is the parish of St Botolph Aldgate, which is just outside the city's eastern gate. That is a, as a parish, as a, as a religious unit, it actually extends beyond the bars of the city and out, but the ward it's part of, which is called Port Soken Ward, which is just the bit of the parish that's within the city, excludes bits of the parish so it's this strange area where people could be parishioners and neighbours but technically one of them's a Londoner and the other one isn't a Londoner and again outside the north of the city um, St Botolph Bishopsgate, another one of the parishes I looked at just at the north of that you have this little area called Northern Folgate who's people who live there are, seem to go to the parish church in bought off bishopsgate they seem to worship with their fellow parishioners um, when you look at their court records they clearly know all the innkeepers who work along bishopsgate they know these people as their neighbors but legally people who live within this tiny little settlement of Norton folgate they're not londoners and also they can get away with stuff that um that londoners can't they're at what's called a liberty which means there are lots of particularly dutch immigrants who live there who are practicing crafts outside of the control of the city's guilds. So the neighbourhoods just outside the city walls are these really interesting spaces where you get London shading into the countryside, you get a society where it's quite ambiguous who's a Londoner and who's not, and there are also places of huge mobility. I've already mentioned that most Londoners have to be immigrants in this in this period these are the spaces that people move through they're the first places that you arrive when you're coming to the city yes yeah, so they're these places where you have hundreds of people moving through every day maybe many of whom you won't know some of whom will settle some of whom won't they're these places where the city is constantly being created anew with new people moving through and people have to contend with the fact that there are people they don't recognize um which is a real problem for the way that medieval society and tutors society works as well because lots of the forms of justice that you have rely on knowing your neighbours and reporting things that are going on in the neighbourhood that you that you think may be a problem for maybe antisocial or you think there may be a crime happening Um, but if you don't know everybody who's around you then that's a real problem for that sort of system so they're really interesting places for looking at how urban societies try and regulate themselves and try and try and figure out how everyone can get along. They're also, I should add, places where it's a bit cheaper to live than the centre of the city, which means you get lots of the people who are poorer or outside the city's control in some ways, like immigrants choose to settle outside the walls because it's simply a more economical place to live. So there's all these things making these really interesting, diverse places.
0: Yes. And speaking of the diversity, you you mentioned some, some Dutch immigrants there. And I know there were certainly within the city places where Italian merchants lived and all that kind of thing. So it'd be wonderful if, we could, if you could tell us a little bit more about some of London's inhabitants at this time.
1: Yeah. So immigrants are really fascinating. And I've written in this book and then also in other places about what immigrants get up to in London. In this period, the main sources of immigration to to London particularly are the low countries. So there are lots of Flemish and Dutch speakers who, who come to London and they tend to work in quite solidly artisan trades so making hats or um, making shoes these kind of things and sometimes also they work in higher end trades and um, so particularly goldsmiths are uh, an area where people have to have really high skill and so there's a real demand for people who come in from training centres on the continent where you might actually learn more during your apprenticeship than you than you would have done in London so you get lots of of goldsmiths coming in as well who are really high skilled so that's the biggest group you also have lots of French immigrants as well and you've already mentioned the Italians the Italians are quite a small group very very politically important and um, we know quite a lot about them relative to others but they tend to be fairly small and they also operate on a family basis so they work as effectively branches of family firms so you'll have like the Portinari or the Bonvisi and they will want to have someone in London to talk to the crown to have aristocratic customers but they'll often be sending kind of their younger sons out to learn the trade in London because frankly it's not a very glamorous (laughs) hosting so they'll have a sort of They'll, it's quite a small community but they'll be replenishing it with with younger sons and associates whereas immigration for for other groups for these kind of more artisan groups particularly for Flemish and the Dutch tends to be much more well it's it's not as it's not as high profile or as organized for that that as that people tend to come and Often they'll live in areas of the city that are uh, particularly dense with people who share their language. So St. Martin-le-Grand is a, a little area that's sort of near St. Paul's and the Guildhall in the kind of inner west of the city. Um, and this is a liberty, as I've talked about, um, the, one of these areas that has legal exemptions. Actually, the people who live there are partly felons escaping justice so people who committed crimes who are trying to escape it but also um, lots and lots of Dutch and French artisans live there as well partly because they can carry on their trade there without being too hassled by guilds although occasionally they do get very hassled by guilds Um, and partly also because they liked to live near people who shared their community and their language I came across the case when I was researching the book of a marriage contract that happens inside St Martin-le-Grand between two French-speaking, a young French-speaking couple and the witnesses who'd come to see that. You can see they've called them from all over the city and their fellow French speakers from the same parts of of France as as the couple had come from. So it's obviously a sort of centre for people who share a language. Yeah, so immigrants will come. We tend to think that immigrants were probably not intending to settle in the city, but nonetheless, a lot of them, a lot of them tend to end up staying and actually, probably about 10% of London's population in this period were immigrants from outside of England. So, so that that's quite a, a high number really of non English speakers who were living in the city.
0: So in terms of social networks, I imagine that obviously where you're worshipping, you know, you'll have a network there, obviously shared language, customs, that kind of thing. But do you want to tell us a little bit more about the networks that existed in these various areas and neighbourhoods?
1: You have lots of kind of overlapping social networks that people that people have. If you think about what kind of things people do in their lives that draw them into um, social relationships with other people, well, you have for people in this period. You have the church, you have their fellow parishioners, the people that they worship with, and the fact that those are their neighbours as well. People live in quite close quarters, so it'd be pretty hard not to know your neighbours often. uh, You can hear very clearly what those neighbours are doing through their walls. There are lots and lots of court cases that where the witnesses are neighbours who say, well, I was upstairs getting on with something else and I heard this argument going on downstairs. Occasionally arguments that happen with someone shouting from their chambers upstairs into someone else's house. So it's quite cheek by jowl. People do know their neighbours quite well. But also the other kinds of things people do in their lives that draw them into wider networks. So work is a really important one. And for people who lived in London in this period, The guilds or companies, as they're becoming known, they formalise those bonds that people gain through work so that people would get to know not just the people who shared their occupation through trade and interchange, but also through formal guild events. You'd have a cycle of feasting and church going that would be part of the guild if you were one of the citizens of the city. And then there's opportunities for advancement um the guilds are really built into the political structure of the city so people who are ambitious can climb um, this sort of hierarchy of offices to get to go somewhere in the city and the guilds are an important part of that so those are important networks we might think of institutional but for the kind of majority of London's inhabitants, you have to be a little bit more creative in thinking about how people get to know each other. Because if you're not a member of a guild, you are not an, don't have access to that. You might be a parishioner and a neighbour to many people, but you uh, wouldn't necessarily be involved in the kind of decision making process of, of the parish, which is where we sort of see social networks happening. It's where you can see people Again, climbing this hierarchy of offices by being church wardens. So for other ordinary people, social networks are are more informal. Family is, is important. So you can see that chain migration happens. People tend to move to London because they might know someone who's gone beforehand, whether it's a cousin or a sister. I came across a couple of cases in courts where you get what are clearly siblings working in service together in the same house they've been sent quite young and perhaps their family had some connection in the city and they were like well this is a good opportunity for my children to advance but I'll send them together so that they have so that they have a kind of uh, a support network there it's kind of can be challenging to get at people's social networks beyond these institutional ones but there's a lot of there's a lot of informal socialising that goes on. The alehouse House would have been probably a centre for socialising, a bit of a raucous and difficult one at times, but it seems to be a place that brings people together. And that's one of the things that the areas just outside the city walls really, that's one of the central functions that they perform for the city, is that they provide spaces for people to go out and have a good time. People tend to seem to come to... Uh, to ale houses there or to go to a cockfighting there or um, bowling hugely important that's one of the that's actually typical of Dutch communities is that they bring a type of bowling with them called klosh, and they set up these klosh barns, these bowling alleys for Dutch bowls in the parishes that are around the edge of the city out in the outside the walls and those would have been centers for Uh, probably fellow Dutch speakers to come and come and have a game of bowls and catch up with their friends, but probably also English people as well are going out there to socialise. So there's lots of different ways that people people get to know each other and get along in the city.
0: Yes. And what about what happens if people aren't getting along very well? (laughs) Why might a person actually find themselves excluded from their neighbourhood at this point?
1: Well, it's very easy to find yourself on the wrong side of your neighbours. That's what it seems to be <laughs> one of the things I've found from looking at court records. So the city has these courts called ward moats, which are really local courts. And I call them courts because they are courts, but then probably not courts as we would think of them. There's one for each ward of the city and it happens at least once a year. And you have a panel of 12 neighbours. You might be more or less qualified for that position. All men, I should add. Um, there's no women involved in, in this. And basically, they get together at least once a year, they get this panel of 12 men together. And the jury then comes up with a list of things that, uh, <laughs> that they feel are problems in the ward that need to be solved. And those problems are really wide ranging. So it includes broken pavements but also people who are doing things that they don't approve of so that or things that they have a, a set of precepts what's called precepts um, which are the kind of the list of offences that they need to that they need to cite but also wards seem to go off peace sometimes and just just name things that they don't like and women unfortunately seem to bear the brunt of this there are quite strong cultural assumptions that women ought to be under male governance and women who aren't under male governance seem to cause a real anxiety for this kind of governing group of, of neighbours they really they monitor what women are up to and women who are running say ale houses or who are for instance taking in sick people to be nursed or allowing young people to hang around in their houses whether or not they're running brothels or or not that these are all sort of sources of concern for these for these jurors And sexual misdemeanours are one of the things that that really preoccupy, preoccupy local juries in this, in this period Um, and in the and in the 1500s, particularly the reign of Henry VIII, this concern becomes even stronger so Cardinal Wolsey goes on a kind of crusade around 1520 to drive sexual immorality out of London and its and its region. And um, you can see around this time that that kind of moral panic sort of filters down into the sorts of things that people are complaining about in, in war modes. So the records that we have, if we think about just sexual immorality, the way that they talk about sexual immorality can be difficult to work out what's what we might think of as kind of professionalized sex work so brothels and prostitutes. it's difficult to tease that out from what's just people that they consider to have loose sexual mores so the word um, meritrix which we tend to translate as whore is kind of a catch-all in the latin of court records so it's really difficult to tell how much of this is actual How much of what gets complained about is actual prostitution and how much of it is just people that they don't like having maybe relationships outside marriage or even just that they are suspicious of of them, even whether or not there's actual sex going on. So, so yes. Yeah, so sexual misdemeanors tend to be an area where people can really run afoul of these jurors, of these sort of men who feel they should be governing their neighborhoods. And if you're a repeat offender, or you're seen as not being kind of contrite enough when you get pulled up on this kind of serious misdemeanor, you can find yourself expelled from the ward of the city and told that you have to leave by the alderman of the ward you have to go elsewhere but because you're just being expelled from a ward the yeah. the evidence we have sort of suggests people just move to somewhere the
0: next else.
1: Ward. <laughs> exactly yeah or try and move or just try and move so if you live outside the city walls I have a case of a fantastic woman called Agnes Cockrell who if people don't read the whole book I'd I'd really suggest just reading a little bit about Agnes Cockrell because she's The only alleged prostitute I've come across who tried to try to take her accusers to court for defamation, even though everyone seems pretty certain that she that, you know, she was a prostitute or there was something going on. There's no there doesn't seem to be much doubt about that. But she tried to accuse them of defamation. And when she gets expelled from the ward of Farringdon Without, which is a ward outside the city's walls to the west, she just moves right into the centre of the city and rocks up and says, I'm a midwife, can I rent this house? And the lady who owns the house says, this seems a little bit suspicious and goes off to find her former neighbours. And that's how the story comes out of what had happened to her. People who've been accused of of being malefactors or antisocial, they try and exploit the fact that you could move within a city of 50, 70,000 people and finds an area where you're not known yet and so you do get people who just try and move around. Eventually you might find yourself being hauled up in front of the mayor and expelled from the city as, as a whole which is probably a more effective punishment frankly than expelling people from wards and particularly accused prostitutes have this a very, there's a ritual ceremony that goes on for expelling them. So they're, they're dressed in, I think it's in white robes, and they have to hold a, a wand, a twig, and they're drawn on a cart. They're put on the back of a cart, drawn through the city streets so everyone recognises them, everyone know, knows them. And they're taken to the gate of the city and formally expelled from there, which is all quite dramatic, yes. if you imagine. this I, know.
0: Is... I was picturing a Game of Thrones scene there so you, as you were talking <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's it's quite dramatic but it's also interesting to note they're just taken to the city walls and told to leave even though there's you know a whole other neighborhood <laughs> you've got to walk through this is one of the things is that the central government of the city seems to think of the city symbolically view as the important bit of the city as being within the walls and they sort of forget about these areas outside so symbolically you expel prostitutes from the city at the gates but Actually, there's still some more city they could just throw away the wand, take off the robe, wander into and try and find somewhere else
0: to live. So interesting about those courts. Um, so did, where, did you get a chance to actually speak up for yourself? Or was it where you actually brought there, Were witnesses brought? Do we know that sort of detail?
1: They don't bring witnesses. It's just it's difficult to tell what the procedure of the court is. But we have a fantastic set of regulations that were written up in 1540 by the Ward of Aldersgate, and they set out regulations for how the how the court was to be run, but also how the jurors were to behave, which sort of suggests they'd had some problems with jurors. There are all sorts of regulations about not wrestling or, or tearing <laughs> people's clothes or threatening violence to other jurors. So obviously, these could be quite heated occasions, um, but there is a regulation in there that says that when you have an offender in the court, no juror is allowed to speak up in their favour, which suggests that they do bring some accused people before the court and that the jurors themselves are meant to try and stay impartial. But one of the things that's interesting about this is that it would have almost been impossible. And you can see why people got into fights and got angry, because These are quite small communities in some cases, and everyone would know each other. Everyone would know the person who's been accused. So it must have been difficult. It must have really tried people's loyalties to if one of your friends is on the jury and you're accused of something, you might expect them to speak up for you and be a bit upset if they don't.
0: All right. And so, Charlotte, tell us a little bit about the relationship between the City of London and the Monarch.
1: So as I said, London was the biggest city in England at the time. And it's also by far the wealthiest. By the later 1400s, it controls a lot of the uh, woolen cloth trade that goes out to the continent, which means it's become even more wealthy than it, it used to be. It used to be that that trade, which was England's primary export trade, was a bit more diffused through other urban centers like York and Hull but it's really concentrated by this period on on London which means London has grown even more disproportionately wealthy which means it's hugely important to the crown so one thing that's probably quite surprising i guess is that people will have heard of the wars of the roses and the fact that there's this intermittent civil war going on through the 15th century and while occasionally that does cause sort of political tensions in London actually It's in no one's interest to ever sack London or to besiege it because because if you do, if you are successful and you do become the monarch, you need the tax revenue from London. You need London's trade to be operating. So clearly, London's quite relaxed about this because as. I've mentioned the city walls are often falling into disrepair through the 15th century. So they're clearly not expecting anyone to kind of immediately, immediately invade it. London has a a relationship with the crown that's generally quite good um, and probably quite well placed compared to other towns because partly because of proximity, the court is at Westminster most of this period. And it means that the mayor and the aldermen are able to, it's relatively close if they need to lobby parliament for anything. The London companies frequently lobby, lobby for royal charters and privileges to assure their economic position. And so it's fairly close, but that's not to say that there aren't tensions and there aren't times when, when kings try to, Interfere in in the politics of London occasionally, more in the late 1300s. But you do have instances where mayoral elections get rigged um, by in favour of the king's preferred candidate. And under Henry VIII, Cardinal Wolsey becomes particularly interested in sexual regulation in trying to improve moral standards around London and and its wider. Region. So you do see that this kind of the kind of the political temperature of what's happening at the court tends to spill over into London in a way that it doesn't always in other towns. Um, And another really important aspect of the relationship is the tension over immigration, particularly in Henry VIII's reign. And as you get through into the 1520s, 1530s, 1540s, London's clearly experiencing rapid growth of population and also. Difficult to tell in terms of exact numbers, but certainly there's a perception that there's more immigration coming from outside of England, coming from the Low Countries, and this really threatens um, a lot of powerful Londoners. Some of the some of the companies see that their position is threatened by these craftsmen coming in who are operating outside of uh, guild structures. So they lobby for for legislation to limit numbers and limit what what immigrants can do but the crown plays quite a quite a clever game with this because actually a lot of the suppliers to henry VIII are immigrants he likes buying high fashion wares and a lot of them come from the continent the king's goldsmith is is an immigrant for most of this period so you get legislation coming in the the king sort of says okay you know we'll we'll limit them but then they'll include these clauses in there that basically make it slightly pointless. So St. Martin, the Grand, the Liberty, I've already mentioned, gets specifically mentioned as a place where, well, immigrants can't take on, say, more than two servants in their shop except in St the grand where they can do whatever they want there's a balancing act going on and especially under Henry VIII as the crown gets more and more interested in domestic policy and economic policy the city and particularly the companies start to do more lobbying to get their interests involved so it's an interesting symbiotic relationship.
0: Yes and I'm just thinking in terms of like pageantry and and civic occasions so coronations for example obviously it's a hugely important symbol being crowned at Westminster Abbey and is this the city paying for these things or is it the crown or a combination?
1: So the city would throw big pageants for big occasions like coronations, sometimes just royal entries as well and the king is an integral part of the city's own pageantry cycle because the mayor is goes to Westminster to swear an oath each year to king so yeah so the city does pay for these big pageants and occasions and it will they'll use the city's streets as places to stage music and also plays so John Lidgegate who was the poet in the early 15th century he's quite famous for for his work otherwise but he was employed to write it seems to be a sort of retrospective description of the royal entry of Henry VI. We're not sure if he actually wrote the texts that were that were used in the pageant, but he writes a poem which commemorates the royal entry of Henry VI in the 1430s. And there's this amazing description of all the, the citizens out in their differently coloured liveries. And then you have different points around the city where actors have been staged, usually in kind of allegorical little sort of mini allegorical plays where someone will make a speech and often it will be a kind of allegorical figure of representing good governance or there's increasingly classical illusions that come into these things as, as the renaissance influence becomes stronger and the idea is to show off the city remind the king of how wealthy and powerful and important the city is and also to it has this function of Kind of instructing the king in in what good governance looks like. So, yeah, and the city does pay for these things. They can be very expensive. And by the later sixteenth century, these are becoming increasingly, increasingly elaborate and and onerous but um the city just seems to love putting on a show
0: Oh, how i wish i could see one of those great shows um so final question for you charlotte what was and you were talking about religious houses earlier on and how many you know different little parish churches there were but also major religious houses what impact did these have on the city
1: the religious houses have a huge impact on the city um It can be a little bit difficult to to quantify exactly what this was, but there's, I can't remember the exact number, but there must be at least 20 religious houses dotted in and around the city's immediate environs, which is just a huge number of institutions, especially when you consider that not only are they these, walled precinct spaces that take up quite a bit of space in and of themselves but also are huge landowners outside of their own outside of their own walls so the parish of St Catherine Cree just inside the city's eastern walls most of the parish seems to have Holy Trinity Priory which is just within it as its landowner. And you see wills from people who live in that parish who name the priory's rent collector as one of the witnesses or the executors of their wills. So clearly they know the staff of the religious houses fairly well they're kind of well-known figures they're important for spiritual reasons they're the, they're incredibly popular objects of charity and wills um, so we see lots and lots of Londoners will leave money to religious houses particularly the ones that tend to be in their little patch of the city but also to the five friaries it's quite common to see people leave money to all five friaries of of London. The friaries are not just, they're not self contained religious houses. Friars um, have a mission to go out and preach to the laity. So, friars would have been well known figures in their two Londoners, and Londoners seem to have um, appreciated this public preaching aspect of them and leave lots of bequests to friars. They were popular. And then you have the hospitals as well, which have religious communities attached to them, but also. Uh, Provide medical care. It's not hospital care in kind of the way we would think about it. So it's probably more a combination of maternity care. So we do see women going there to give birth and particularly women who are pregnant outside of marriage being sent there to give birth, partly because it's a discreet place to do that if you don't necessarily want everyone to know that you've given birth, but also. A kind of hospice care later in life, not necessarily right at the end of life when death is immediately anticipated, but when people have become infirm enough that, that it's difficult for them to live independently, people will often go into a hospital. They provide these kind of medical purposes and spiritual purposes. And I think an area that's maybe underestimated is just the economic impact of religious houses as well. Because they're big landowners, and also because they would have been big consumers of resources, some of them have fairly kind of fairly large communities attached to them. We don't know that much about fair kind of, like the ins and outs of where they were buying stuff, but they would have been big consumers on London markets. But they also have an economic impact on London that's long lasting. So they're all, most of them, I think, dissolved by the end of the 1530s. There might be one or two that's hung on into the early 1540s, but they get dissolved, their property gets broken up. But because they've amassed these huge estates over the late 1400s and 1500s, many of them owning much of the land around them, being tenants to huge numbers of people, having many tenants in their immediate environment and also having lay housing within their precincts, which have become quite crowded by the 1530s, they've created uh, estates that, that then become the cause Outside London's walls for the big suburban expansion which is happening in the mid-16th century. So as those estates are bought up by other people, they become economically exploited to become even more profitable. And that's where you see a lot of the house building going on that happens in the mid-16th century, which is when London's starting to really spread out beyond its beyond its traditional boundaries and just and also those landlords who buy up that property follow on from some of the practices that houses themselves have been doing for the previous sort of 50 or so years so religious houses had started to build these quite densely connected alleyways of properties which provide provide housing for the poor and that is the model um, that really takes off as the suburbs become incredibly densely populated and much bigger in the later 16th century so they have an impact immediately within the time period in which they existed. may also set a template for how London expands over the following 100, 200 years.
0: This has been such a fascinating discussion, Charlotte. Thank you. Right up my alley. I love, I love learning about medieval and Tudor London. So thank you so much. There is a, a last thing, a couple of final things we do on on these podcast episodes. And one of those is 10 to go. So these are just 10 quick questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So first one, and this one, I kind of shake when I ask it because I, I often add books to my list. What was the last book that you bought or that you read?
1: I'm really bad at reading at the moment. I I have a big pile of paperbacks next to my bed that I'm (laughs) I'm not working my way through. But I think the last one I bought was a book called Braised Pork by Anne Yu, which is a uh, novel about a woman who's set in Beijing, whose husband dies unexpectedly, and she is suddenly set loose on the world and has to figure out uh, what to do with her life. But because I'm bad at reading, I am two chapters in. But so far, it seems good.
0: <laughs> and what about um, a signature recipe? Are you known for cooking, or is this not your thing? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I like to. I like to cook. I think with my friends i'm probably known for well i sort of started the tradition maybe about 10 years ago of cooking sunday roasts for my friends and and cramming them all into flats that are too small and trying to cook for too many people and trying to cook cook a sunday roast for 10 people on a small oven at one stage so i i enjoy doing that it's difficult it's difficult to do but shoulder of lamb it's a good way to feed a lot of people
0: yeah, that sounds delicious. And what about a place close to where you live um, that you like to go to? Maybe an inspirational place that, you know, if you need the muses, where do you go?
1: Oh, wow. Well, I'm lucky enough to live in Hackney in East London, which I really love. It's a really nice neighbourhood and I've been here for quite a long time. But I recently moved over to the east side of the borough and I now live really close to Hackney Marshes, which is I don't think people know about it, but it's fairly central in terms of how big London gets. But it's this huge open marshland with canal and the River Lee running through it. And it's being restored back to, to be a wetland So and being managed in traditional ways. So it has cows grazing on it in the summer and stuff. And it also tends to, I find it kind of inspiring, or I found it inspiring when I was writing the book because The River Lee, which runs through it, is one of the main ways that people transported goods to get to London. They take them down the river from. Hertfordshire and um, I offload them at Stratford, uh, which is quite near me. And then they trundle along the road into, okay, into the into the city of London. So um, I do like a good walk by the river there because I, I can imagine I'm a medieval drover bringing my <laughs> bringing my sheep to market.
0: I love it. I actually, I, I have visited Hackney. I did a, a tour of, a friend of mine that lives there as well, did a tour of Tudor Hackney. There was lots of fantastic places to see. So if people are listening and they're Interested. And I'm also just I was reminded when you were saying walking around in those beautiful marshlands that that's where people went to obviously escape the, you know, the London pollution in the 16th century. Lots of the nobility had some lovely houses there and people taking the air and recuperating there. So that's that's really cool that you live there.
1: Yeah. And um, Sutton House, which Sutton House, yes. You must have visited. I, H- I love that. It gets mentioned in Hilary Mantel's Wall Village yes. because it's uh, Rafe Sadler's house originally. So
0: It's fantastic. Yeah. And I don't think too many people, I, I uh, featured it in my book about Tudor London that I did like a sort of tour of Tudor London. And it's a, be- it's a fantastic place. It's so atmospheric. And I found that I could really really picture Tudor times while I was standing there looking at the bricks that they have and it was it was great I highly recommend it for anyone listening so Charlotte what about an ideal Sunday morning for you what does that consist of
1: oh that's a good question well I suppose an ideal Sunday morning would be getting up late and (laughs) having a having a coffee and sitting in bed and having my cat Jarvis. who's been interrupting us constantly through this whole recording. Come and yeah, sit on my lap and maybe, maybe read, have a coffee.
0: Yeah, that sounds perfect. And I was <laughs> one of the questions I had was about pets, but I've been able to see lovely Java strolling around. But um do you have any other pets or is it just the the cat that you have?
1: it's just Jarvis, my cat. Yeah, he's and he is grumpy enough for both of us. So I don't think he would appreciate having any other pets in the house.
0: Yeah, he seems very confident when he just strolls past the screen. Very cute. (laughs) So um, when you were a child, what were you hoping to become when you were older?
1: I think I I wanted to be a journalist, I think. But obviously, I never quite got there. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I've always enjoyed sort of, researching and reading about things and um yeah so when I was a kid the only person I could think of who did that was a journalist so I guess yeah
0: (laughs) kind of on that same track is there any mystery uh doesn't have to be a historical one but it could be I guess that you would like to know the answer to
1: Oh, this is really stupid! Someone stole a bike lock from outside my house the other day, and I'd love to know where that's gone.
0: (laughs) There you go—a modern, a modern detective story that you can solve. No, that's all good. Doesn't have to be a big mystery. And last one: something that you're looking forward to this year.
1: I am going to Glastonbury Festival next month, which I'm really excited about. I've never been before, and I was lucky enough to be able to get a last minute spot to go. So yeah, I'm really excited
0: about that. Oh, that sounds really good. And there is one final thing and I promise that's the last thing and it's the Tudor takeaway. So I asked all my guests for a takeaway, something for our listeners to go off and check out after the show. So do you have a takeaway for us?
1: Yeah. So I think people should go and check out the Rijksmuseum online catalogue which is called Rijksstudio which is an amazing collection of art and objects from all periods but because Netherlandish art was so cutting edge and so brilliant in the 1400s and 1500s it has an amazing collection of prints and paintings from that period and um, that are really maybe our best visual sources for what north european towns and cities and people and society looked like in that period and it's all copyright free which is also helpful so you can use it uh, as much as you like and uh, actually the cover of my book comes from the Wright studio collection which is from uh autopiece on the seven works of charity by The master of Alkmaar, sort of anonymous. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's this amazing depiction of the works of charity that people could undertake in kind of that were believed to be things that would help your soul get through purgatory. Um, But they're painted in a way that's meant to illustrate how you would do them in a kind of urban context. So all of these works of charities are set within a medieval town with these sorts of pictures of these sorts of ordinary people that you would you would help so yeah it's a fantastic collection for things like that if you want to get an idea of what the period of what the period looks like and also um, I mentioned klosh, the Dutch form of bowling earlier it helped me find a picture of what klosh looks like <laughs> which it. Which I don't think actually made it into the book in the end, but there's I've written some blogs which which have that picture in there. So it's an amazing visual source if you want to find out what any aspect of ordinary life looks like.
0: It's a fantastic takeaway. And I won't even tell you how many hours I have spent on that catalogue. <laughs> that's just a little warning to anyone listening. If you think it's just a quick flick through, no, you'll be there for, for days, but but it's brilliant. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on the show and Talking Tudors with us. No problem, Natalie. It's been a pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. the behind the scenes news you'll also find me on twitter my handle is on the Tudor trail and on instagram as the most happy 78. it's time now for us to re-enter the modern world as always i look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon